Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So what we have is a, a Madonna and Child, the most common subject of Renaissance painting. Carlo Crivelli holds a special place in the pantheon of Renaissance artists. He sits outside the mainstream of painting's development in Renaissance Italy, yet his creative imagination and his abilities as a painter can rank with those of any of his more famous contemporaries. His Madonna and Child is one of the treasures of the permanent collection at the San Diego Museum of Art and a high-tech project to document the genesis and state of conservation of the work now shows that there is much, much more to the painting than meets the eye. And according to John Marchiari, the museum's curator of Italian and Spanish paintings, the work can help new audiences appreciate Crivelli's eccentric but beautiful style. He doesn't look like other Renaissance artists. He's a stranger. And this image is typical of his work. Uh, you have this very severe sculptural virgin, a slightly strange-looking child, frankly, and this interesting give-and-take between the old, if you want to call it medieval or early Renaissance, iconic mode of painting, and then the new naturalism that we see develop in the years leading to 1500. Crivelli died five years before the turn of that century, and no images of the artist have survived. Details of his life, in fact, are spotty. Born around 1435 in Venice, Crivelli was an apprentice in the Viverini workshop, but he spent most of his career in a provincial region called the Marche, or the Marches, far from Venice, which he left after spending six months in jail. He first really comes into a written history when, in the 1450s, he is arrested, tried, fined, and imprisoned for cohabiting with the wife of, Venet of a Venetian sailor who was out at sea. Crivelli left Venice for good in 1459, first moving to Padua, where he studied the works of Francesco Squarcione and Andrea Mantegna, then to a port town on the Adriatic Sea, today called Zadar, now in Croatia, but then part of the Venetian Republic. Ultimately, Crivelli settled in the marches, first in the town of Fermo, later alternating between Fermo and Ascoli Piceno. But he signed his works as Carlo Crivelli from Venice until his death. But we don't know a whole lot about him. Because he worked in an out-of-the-way place that didn't have a tradition of art historical writing, we know much less about him than we do about an art of comparable quality in Venice or Florence or Rome. Art historians' interest in Crivelli has increased in recent decades, and science now sheds new light on the artist, thanks in part to the Digital Clinical Chart Project, launched by UC San Diego's Center of Interdisciplinary Science for Art, Architecture, and Archaeology, Chisa III, and its director, Maurizio Saracini. You need to use uh, technology, especially multispectral imaging, that can capture uh, the, um, uh, at different depths, uh, uh, the, the visual understanding not only of the genesis but also of uh, problems of decay that otherwise are not uh, being recognized with just uh, naked eyes. Maurizio loves to use this analogy of the painting as a kind of patient, as this uh, object for study. And we've studied objects in more or less systematic ways in museums in the past, but this is the, a real advance in terms of being uh, thorough and systematic and really analyzing 
the patient, in this case, a great painting by Crivelli, in such detail that later scholars are going to be able to go back and see just exactly how healthy this object was at the time and what we've done to it to increase its life. We are in the prototypal stage of uh, research and development of the proper technology and the proper methodology um, to be used in order to make a, create a clinical chart. The Crivelli is among a handful of Renaissance paintings at the museum for which clinical charts are now in the works. We've learned a great deal about the painting and what's happened to it from the moment it was created or even during its creation. The construction of the clinical chart begins by assembling the sort of information that museums have always assembled for their collections, scholarly literature, archival research, provenance records, and so forth. Some of this information is gathered from records and books and some from the painting itself. A view of the back of the Crivelli panel, for example, reveals old exhibition labels as well as the red wax seal of the collector Oskar Holczynski, who owned the painting early in the 20th century. This information is then juxtaposed with scientific examinations, including very high-resolution imaging, ranging from 3D laser modeling to various types of infrared, ultraviolet, X-ray, and other scanning techniques, each of which provides unique insights into different layers of a painting. Normally, the sequence of uh, multispectral acquisitions um, is such that uh, you use a wavelength that will help you first establish what is on the surface, or whatever is related to the surface, move on inside uh, in the painting all the way to the support. The Crivelli is first photographed in minute detail with cameras and filters deployed on an automated arm. Dozens of images are then stitched together, and Chisa 3 researchers use the world's highest resolution display system, the hyperspace wall in the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, to make sense of the enhanced detail. These brilliant new images help the scientists and the curators study the painting, but they can also be used to demonstrate some of its key points to the public. It's a very iconic painting with this gold background and the Virgin framed against this cloth of honor behind her. Yet you have these modern touches, these touches of, of observed reality. For example, in the way that the child puts his hand on the virgin's shoulder and leans in against her, or the way his thumb grabs her dress. And then, from an artistic point of view, uh, some very uh, beautiful, naturalistic, almost trompe l'oeil motifs. So the cloth of honor hangs from this rod. It's held onto it with these laces, and there are these fruits that hang from it. You see these everywhere in Crivelli's painting, and they have both a symbolic and a stylistic function, you could say. The symbolism seems to derive from some passages in the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms, that talk about the fruit of the womb that will be set upon the throne. This, by the Renaissance, was understood to be a, a prefiguring of Christ. And so um, Crivelli and a number of other artists associate the virgin and child with these images of fruit. Um, they also, though, derive from classical sculpture, specifically from sarcophagus reliefs. Crivelli studied in Padua, uh, or was in Padua at the time that Mantegna was there. Mantegna makes the great examination of ancient sculpture and begins putting garlands of this type in his works. The painting is on a wooden panel in gold leaf, tempera, and oil. 
Infrared light can pass through the paint layers, allowing the study of a charcoal or ink drawing beneath the paint. Marchiari and Saracini expected to find some underdrawing in Crivelli's painting, but the completeness of the drawing was stunning. An, almost a, an obsessive underdrawing uh, that he knew would have been completely covered by the painted surface. And then he begins drawing, probably with a dilute ink uh, with a tiny brush, sketches in the basic composition, and then uses cross-hatching shading through the entire work, every detail. Only then does he begin painting. For all the obsessiveness of the underdrawing, Crivelli departs from it in places. Comparing the visible light image with the infrared, for example, you can see how he first thins, then thickens the curve of the child's calves trying to refine the position. The computer-generated overlays of the multispectral scanning process also allows curators, scientists, and now the public to fade in and out from one layer of the painting to another. Through this process, one can easily see, for example, places where Crivelli departed from the carefully drawn pattern on the cloth behind the Madonna. The gold leaf would then be applied to the painting. Special punch tools were used to create patterns in the gold. Only then would painting begin. Here, too, Crivelli used an elaborate technique, working in multiple layers. We move in then in the, in the range of uh, the infrared band. So we operate at uh, one micron, uh, especially in the pseudocolor infrared. Pseudocolor infrared helps with identifying pigments. Since most of the pigments and uh, binding media are transparent in this uh, wavelength uh, range, then uh, it is possible indeed to uh, gather um, information from uh, the infrared light that is sent over the painting being reflected at different depths. Crivelli's painting was made around 1470, a time when Venetian painters were just beginning to use oil paint. Ultraviolet light produces a very bright yellow fluorescence on oil paint, so scans in that spectrum make it easy to detect which parts of Crivelli's painting were done in oil and which in tempera. For as meticulous as Crivelli is with his little strokes of tempera paint, it's as if he was just at this point learning how to use oil paint, the consistency of which and the properties of which are radically different from tempera paint. In fact, Crivelli painted the entire panel in tempera, then used oil in a few key places. For the highlights in the white veil, the veil's lace fringe that has a see-through transparent quality to it, and the trompe l'oeil device, which seems to be both part of and separate from the painting, carrying the seal of Crivelli's hitherto unidentified patron, seeming almost lifelike in three dimensions even to the naked eye. The ultraviolet scans are also an essential tool in documenting what has happened to the painting since Crivelli finished it. The greenish glow over the surface indicates more than one layer of varnish. Then we have seen uh, uh, restorations. Uh, some of them are... Uh, they look dark because they have absorbed the UV light and, um, and that usually is indicative of uh, some recent restorations. We don't mean necessarily uh, an only cleaning or over cleaning, but in this, uh, for the, the case of the Crivelli, I should say repaint. Then we move on to the x-ray. Uh, the x-ray, it's much more penetrating obviously and uh, it's really, it's a projection of the radio opacity of the different materials, including, in this case, the panel. Previous attempts to fill holes in the wood panel with gesso appear clearly as bright white dots in the x-ray. Also visible, the extent to which woodworms have eaten into or out of the panel. 
But the study of woodworm holes can also confirm that the painting was not part of a larger work. If you trim a panel, you expose trails, the sides of trails, um, whereas the worms only ever go directly in or out. So as long as the holes are nice, clean, round entry holes, you know that you have the original edge. Today, conservation is done in pigments that can easily be removed. But in the past, much more aggressive means were used in attempts to freshen up old paintings. We also see three or four earlier campaigns of restoration work on the panel. And these probably date from, well, there may be one from the 16th century, uh, and then there are at least two or three more in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, the sort of thing that you can find on virtually any Renaissance painting. Certain pigments uh, were uh, harmed by cleaning solvents, especially the green down in uh, the green and the brown uh, shadows of the child's legs are very much damaged and, and slightly remade. The blue of the virgin's robe seems to have been completely repainted at some point, although perhaps rather early uh, in its history. We know that there was some event which caused a major cracking of the paint surface. This is probably the moment when the panel warped. It's probably the same moment when it lost its original frame. Which was nailed directly onto the surface of the panel in the now unpainted margin. The frame moldings were usually also covered in gold leaf, but in this case, the researchers found traces of red paint all around the margin of the painting and determined that at least the inner edge of the frame was vermilion red. This is unusual, but just another of the many facets of the painting that the recent research has revealed. Still ahead for the project are a series of diagnostic tests that will hopefully provide answers to some of the questions raised by the multispectral imaging. Well, we still have not yet done pigment analysis or cross-section analysis. There are some places where we are curious about the layers of paints as to which are original and which are retouching. Also ahead for the project, researchers will do point-by-point non-invasive identification of inorganic materials using both X-ray fluorescence and Raman spectroscopy. There is a lot of material there not visible to the naked eye which, with Maurizio's tools and the insights of the Cal IT2 scientists, we're able to bring that out and show it to the public in a, I think, very compelling way. It will allow us to call up the infrared image or the X-ray and the visible spectrum and manipulate them to study the painting, but then to store our manipulations, again, as part of the digital clinical chart. And ultimately, this will be linked not only to our own database, but to those of other museums that have such a chart. So that, for example, in the case of Crivelli, it would be very interesting to know when exactly he starts to use oil paint. And that work just hasn't been done. Meanwhile, Marchiari and the team from UC San Diego are developing clinical charts for several other key works from the San Diego Museum of Art's collection. Like Crivelli, the artist Cosmetura is known to have made complete underdrawings for his paintings, so Tura's St. George was an obvious candidate for multispectral imaging. Also included, this Giorgione, the masterpiece of the museum's Renaissance collection. And because Giorgione and Vincenzo Catena shared a studio, the project is developing a chart for Catena's holy family with St. Anne. Some works 
kind of at the margins of Giorgione. Some disputed attributions by Giorgione may turn out to be works by Vincenzo Catena, and I'm hoping the information we gather here, when compared with information from other uh, museums' paintings, will help clarify the work of the two artists. And they'll use a new imaging technology that has not yet been used on paintings. It's called terahertz time domain spectroscopy. It's a new revolutionary technology that will be able to uh, create an image at the depth, at the interface of every single layer of paint, and at that interface also to make a spectroscopy analysis that, and to, in, in order to recognize which pigment and which binding media um, is present. Currently, only the wealthiest museums can afford their own equipment of the sort used by Chisa 3 to develop digital clinical charts. But as Saracini and his colleagues prototype a standard methodology and portable technologies, like the automated XYZ scanner they've already developed at UC San Diego, the cost of the equipment will come down. As any new science, we have to see that this is the prototype. This is the very early stage. But... Um, I, th I truly believe that any museum out there will be able to afford it. If we can develop a useful model that can be uh, exported to other institutions, I think you're going to find that a lot of museums will be able to use these techniques to help them in their conservation efforts. I can see how museums um, can finally join together in tackling these very crucial problems related to conservation and also dissemination of a new understanding of these works of art beneficial for the public at large. Saracini and his colleagues at UC San Diego hope their work at the San Diego Museum of Art will lead to a worldwide cyber infrastructure accessible via the Internet to allow museums and researchers to upload and share their clinical charts, one day paving the way for new collaborations, new findings, and a more scientific way of monitoring and safeguarding the health and safety of great works of art. Scientists who have been studying the health of the Lake Tahoe Basin say the news is not good. Global warming is adversely affecting all aspects of the environment. Water quality, the pollution in the air, and the health of the forests. UC Davis environmental scientists say the Tahoe climate is warming up. A new comprehensive study shows that lake waters are warmer by as much as 5 degrees. There are fewer days below freezing, the nights are warmer, and the percentage of snow has decreased. Chief scientist Jeff Schlatto says the findings are significant. The extent of meteorological change surprised me. Before we documented the temperatures had been rising, but when we actually looked at, at the reduction in number of freezing days and we looked at the uh, change in rain to snow, that shocked me really uh, to see that it had changed so much and that in particular the lake has warmed so much just in the last seven or eight years. The band of haze that develops over the lake most evenings is clear evidence of air pollution plaguing the basin. Most of my concern right now is in the transport of materials into the basin from outside. There's a lot of pressure to do more prescribed fire on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada. We need a lot of oil refining in the Carcanet Strait. We're even getting dust from China. And all these come across the top and give you a haze that sort of fills the whole basin on average. And then on, on below it, you have local dust 
and diesel exhaust. Cahill says the pollution is worse in the summer. Paul Fotenauer reporting from Lake Tahoe. Scientists say there is a 99% chance California will experience a magnitude 6.7 or greater earthquake sometime within the next 30 years. As the state braces for the inevitable, scientists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego are making major improvements to one of the field's most fundamental tools, the seismometer and developing early warning systems they hope will save lives when the expected finally happens. Scripps researcher Yehuda Bach, director of the California Spatial Reference Center, installed the first real-time global positioning system stations at Scripps's Pinion Flats Earth Observation Facility in 2004. Today, the system consists of over 80 GPS stations throughout Southern California, offering a promising early warning system that could outrun seismic waves, giving cities precious seconds to prepare. Uh, after um, we detect an event um, and, and uh, disseminate the event to first responders, then they can use that information to, um, for example, shut down critical facilities like gas lines or slow down trains such as has been demonstrated already uh, in Japan. Um, the, cru the crucial step is to be able to find somebody to uh, accept this information and react basically in a auto predetermined automatic fashion if such an event occurs. Uh, we're now developing a methodology to determine the, the uh, magnitude and the location of the event within, within seconds and then uh, set up a mechanism where this, this information could be assimilated. In addition, Scripps researchers are giving seismometers a needed facelift using the most modern technology. New sensors jointly designed and built by Scripps researchers Jose Otero, Mark Zumberg, and John Berger could offer seismologists an instrument capable of producing clearer recordings of seismic movements than current seismometers. They can also better withstand the extreme environments that scientists must access to listen to Earth's rumblings. The biggest motivation was there's a, there's a lot of seismometers on the market, um, but there's not very many broadband seismometers, so we wanted to develop a broadband seismometer um, that's easily attainable because the current seismometer that everybody uses is no longer being made, and that's called the STS-1 developed by Strickheisen. And um, there's very few of them available on the market, and the few that are available on the market are starting to break down, and there's not very many people who could fix them. So don't really have the tools we need to perform the science we want to do. We could deploy this into boreholes, whereas most, like the STS-1, which is you know, kind of the instrument everybody wants to use, can't really easily go down in a borehole. One, because you have these long electrical wires that connect the two, and when you use really long electrical wires, they start picking up noise from the environment. And more than that, a lot of boreholes are encased in metal. So if you have a lightning strike in the region, it, lightning tends to ground to anything that's metal, so if you have your instrument in there, your instrument's going to get fried. Um, and, you know, if you have a $130,000 instrument in a hole and it gets hit by lightning and it's destroyed, that's not a good day. This could get hit by lightning. It's not going to hurt it. Well, the fiber optic um, carries the light into the interferometer. Um, there's, there's two ways you could get light into the interferometer. You could go directly in it, so you could set the laser right up in front of the seismometer and perfectly align everything, make, make sure they're at the same heights. Um, but, but the problem with that is, is the laser has to be right next to the seismometer. 
that won't work in a borehole. But if you put the laser far away, you can imagine fiber optic is like a hose, but instead of carrying water, it carries light. And you know, normally light scatters everywhere, but in a fiber optic, the, the light will follow the fiber perfectly and come out the other end. So we take the light from the laser through the fiber and to the seismometer, and it's as if the laser was right in front of the seismometer when it's not really, it's really far away. We could place the seismometer, you know, a couple kilometers away from the laser and the optics, which is nice because then you could, you know, use one laser, run a bunch of seismometers that are a few kilometers apart from each other down boreholes. If there's a large earthquake, say in Sumatra, like a magnitude 8 or 9, you're not going to detect that in San Diego. You're not going to feel it in San Diego, but surface waves will come through San Diego, and a quiet instrument will detect those surface waves a few hours after the earthquake here. Um, if you have a noisier instrument, it's not going to see them. By understanding how the Earth works around fault zones, scientists can get even closer to pinpointing the causes, strength, and locations of earthquakes, information vital to save lives. Scripps scientists continue to develop new earthquake monitoring systems to better understand earthquake triggers and to quickly detect the direction in which the destructive wave will travel, in hopes it can be outpaced before it arrives. More looking at the structure of the Earth, more understanding how you know, seismic waves propagate through the Earth and what's down there is kind of the goal of this instrument. But naturally, you know, a seismologist, why is it important to monitor earthquakes? Well, so we could get a better understanding and make the public more aware of the potential destruction we could create. I mean, if we understand how the earthquake works more, then we could understand, okay, well, we know the Earth might move this way, so what can we do to build a better building or something like that? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.